We invite your attention to the 18th chapter of First Kings. And while you're finding that, I, uh, I guess I'll have to start with an apology. Um, guys, this is a long text. It's 46 verses. And um, this is what's known as historical narrative. It's, it's an event. It's a, it, it's a description of an event. And if you take out portions of it, you miss, you miss the event. So um, I'll try to do my best to not bore you as I read this. It's not good pedagogy to read to people, but I'll try to make it enjoyable to listen to. If you've got your Bibles with you, it'd be good to to follow as I read. Beginning at verse 1, we'll read chapter 18 in its entirety. It's It's a really famous, wonderful story in the life of Elijah. Here we go. After many days, the word of the Lord came to Elijah in the third year, saying, Go show yourself to Ahab, and I will send rain upon the earth. So Elijah went to show himself to Ahab. Now the famine was severe in Samaria. And Ahab called Obadiah, who was over the household. Now Obadiah feared the Lord greatly. And when Jezebel cut off the prophets of the Lord, Obadiah took a hundred prophets and hid them by by fifties in a cave and fed them with bread and water. And Ahab said to Obadiah, Go through the land to all the springs of water and to all the valleys. Perhaps we may find grass and save the horses and mules alive and not lose some of the animals. So they divided the land between them to pass through it. Ahab went in one direction by himself and Obadiah went in another direction by himself. And as Obadiah was on the way, behold, Elijah met him. And Obadiah recognized him and fell on his face and said, It is you, my lord. Is it you, my lord, Elijah? And he answered him, it is I. Go tell your Lord, behold, Elijah is here. And he said, how have I sinned that you would give your servant into the hand of Ahab to kill me? As the Lord your God lives, there is no nation or kingdom where my Lord has not sent to seek you. And when they would say he is not here, he would take an oath of the kingdom or nation that they had not found you. And now you say, go tell your Lord, behold, Elijah is here. And as soon as I have gone from you, the spirit of of the Lord will take, will carry you. I know not where. And so when I come to tell Ahab and he cannot find you, he will kill me. Although I, your servant, have feared the Lord from my youth. Has it not been told, my Lord, what I did when Jezebel killed the prophets of the Lord? How I hid a hundred men of the Lord's prophets by fifties in a cave and fed them with bread and water? And now you say, go, your, go tell your Lord, behold, Elijah is here and he will kill me. And Elijah said, As the Lord of hosts lives before whom I stand, I will surely show myself to him today. So Obadiah went to meet Ahab and told him, and Ahab went to meet Elijah. When Ahab saw Elijah, Ahab said to him, Is it you, you troubler of Israel? And he answered, I have not troubled Israel, but you have, and your father's house, because you have abandoned the commandments of the Lord and followed the Baals. Now, therefore, send and gather all Israel to me at Mount Carmel and the 400 prophets of Baal and the 400 prophets of Asherah who eat at Jezebel's stable. So Ahab sent to all the people of Israel and gathered the prophets together at Mount Carmel. And Elijah came near to all the people and said, how long will you go limping between two different opinions? If the Lord is God, follow him. But if Baal, then follow him. And the people did not answer him a word. Then Elijah said to the people, I, even I only, am left a a prophet of the Lord, but Baal's prophets are 450 men. 
Let two bulls be given to us, and let them choose one bull for themselves, and cut it into pieces, and lay it on the wood, but put no fire to it. And I will prepare the other bull, and lay it on the wood, and put on, put no fire to it. And you call upon the name of your God, and I will call upon the name of the Lord, and the God who answers by fire, he is God. And all the people said, it is well spoken. Then Elijah said to the prophets of Baal, choose for yourselves one bull and prepare it first. For you are many, and call upon the name of your God, but put no fire to it. And they took the bull that was given them, and they prepared it and called upon the name of Baal from morning until noon, saying, Oh, Baal, answer us. But there was no voice, and no one answered. And they limped around the altar that they had made, and at noon Elijah mocked them, saying, Cry aloud, for he is a god. Either he is musing or he is relieving himself or he is on a journey or perhaps he's asleep and must be awakened. And they cried aloud and cut themselves after their custom with swords and lances until the blood gushed out upon them. And at mid, and as midday passed, they raved on until the time of the offering of the oblation, but there was no voice. No one answered. No one paid attention. Then Elijah said to all the people, come near to me. And all the people came near to him, and he repaired the altar of the Lord that had been thrown down. Elijah took twelve stones, according to the number of the tribes of the sons of Jacob, to whom the word of the Lord came, saying, Israel shall be your name. And with the stones he built an altar in the name of the Lord, and he made a trench about the altar, as great as would contain two seas of seed. And he put the wood in order and cut the bulls in pieces and laid it on the wood. And he said, fill four jars with water and pour it on the burnt offering and on the wood. And he said, do it a second time. They did it a second time. And he said, do it a third time. They did it a third time. And the water ran around the altar and filled the trench, filled the trench also with water. At the time of the offering of the oblation, Elijah the prophet came near and said, O Lord God of Abraham, Isaac, and Israel, Let it be known this day that you are God in Israel and that I am your servant and that I have done all these things at your word. Answer me, O Lord. Answer me that this people may know that you, O Lord, are God and that you have turned their hearts back. Then the fire of the Lord fell and consumed the burnt offering and the wood and the stones and the dust and licked up the water that was in the trench. And when all the people saw it, they fell on their faces and said, The Lord, he is God. The Lord, he is God. And Elijah said to them, Seize the prophets of Baal. Let no one, let not one of them escape. And they seized them. And Elijah brought them down to the book Kishon and slaughtered them there. And Elijah said to Ahab, Go up, eat and drink, for there is a sound of the rushing of rain. So Ahab went up to eat and to drink. And Elijah went up to the top of Mount Carmel and he bowed himself down on the earth and put his face between his knees. And he said to his servant, go up now, look toward the sea. And he went up and looked and said, there is nothing. And he said, go again, seven times. And at the seventh time, he said, behold, a little cloud like a man's hand is rising upon the, from the sea. And he said, go up, say to Ahab, prepare your chariots and go down, lest the rain stop you. And in a little while, The heavens grew black with clouds and wind, and there was a great rain, and Ahab rode and went to Jezebel. And the hand of the Lord was on Elijah, and he gathered up his garments and ran before Ahab to the entrance of Jezreel. The grass withers, and the flower fades, but the word of our God, it endures forever. 
Guys, at this point, Elijah has been gone from Israel about three years. He's, um, we'll, we'll call it a working vacation. Um, but when he left, he took with him the word of God. He, he was, in essence, the word of God himself. He was, that's what prophets were. They represented the presence of the word of God. And now upon his return, he uh, brings with him the word of the Lord with all of its potency for blessing of Israel. God has uh, come out of hiding. At a, at a, at a time of his own choosing. He's about to bring about a resurrection. A resurrection in Israel. And he's gonna do that by, um, restoring the word of God to Israel and slaughtering the enemies of God, um, there on Mount Carmel. The Israel to which Elijah returns is, uh, far worse off now than when he left. You notice in verse 2 that it says that the, the, the famine was severe. You're also told that there is um, uh, there was now a, uh, a, uh, an edict from Ahab to, to slaughter and kill all of the prophets of Yahweh. And so Obadiah, one of the servants of the house, a God-fearer, hide some of those prophets in caves. So the situation has grown worse since he's been gone. Now, guys, here's what I want to do with this text. Three things. First of all, I want to take you down two quick side roads. Now, if you're new to Grace of Anne, when I say side road, all I mean is this. What I want to say first is not the main thrust of the text, but it's in the text. And I, and I hope by pointing it out, it might be profitable for us. So we'll go down two side roads real quick, then we'll take a look at the story rather rather briefly, and then we'll close with trying to draw some um, some lessons out of this great event in the life of Elijah. So to the to the two side roads real quick. First of all... I, I want you to notice verse 17, when, when Ahab first meets Elijah and he says, Is it you, O troubler of Israel? Now that, that language, troubler of Israel, comes out of Joshua chapter 6. Uh, you, you may remember the story about when uh, Joshua uh, and the armies uh, overtook and destroyed Jericho. And there's one of his soldiers by the name of Achan who stole some gold and some changes of clothes and he went and hid it under his tent. And this is in Joshua chapter 6, and um, when they found out it was Achan, they, uh, they took him and his family and stoned him. And, and, and Achan was called a man who had brought trouble on Israel. Well, Ahab picks up that language and calls Elijah the troubler of Israel. And the part I want you to see, the thing that I think is instructive, is Elijah's response. Oh, no, sir, Rebobby. You got this all wrong, Ahab. I'm not the troubler of Israel. You're the troubler of Israel. You and your sin. It's you that's brought trouble on Israel. Now, here's the point that I, I want us to derive, guys. Throughout the history of the church, the, the enemies of God are... They're, they're, they're quick to blame and... And say that it's the church, it's the, it's the righteous who are the troublers. We're the troublemakers. Accusing the righteous is a, is a favorite ploy of Satan, whose name means accuser. But when, when, when Elijah responds, you notice that he's not intimidated by that. And he doesn't respond with some kind of pseudo-humble, yeah, they have, you might be right. Maybe, maybe we're both a little bit to blame. No. There's a certain confidence about his reply that really turns me on. You know, the, the book of Proverbs says the righteous are bold as lions. 
Now, guys, here's the point that I want you to see. We Christians, we really always need to be open to rebuke. I mean, because there's plenty of sin to rebuke in me, at least. But but sometimes what may appear to be a um, an angelic rebuke is really not that at all. It's an accusation on the part of Satan that's designed to, to sweep us away into some kind of sea of guilt. Just because you say I'm guilty of something doesn't necessarily mean that I am. Here's the distinction that I want you to keep in mind, guys. Particularly you sensitive souls out there. There is a difference between an offense given and an offense taken. Sometimes I need to be rebuked because I gave offense. At other times, ladies and gentlemen, it's not my problem. It's yours. It's not an offense given. It's an offense taken. What what I'm simply trying to say is, ladies and gentlemen, I'm trying to reduce unnecessary guilt. Sometimes I am guilty. Other times I'm not. Keep that distinction in mind. The other side road that I want you to see has to do with um, something that I think you know about. I want you to take a look at Ahab's attitude after three and a half years of drought. When he finally meets up with Elijah, there in verse 17 and on, there's not one word of God. There's not one word of sin. There's not one word of um, repentance. No, no. All he's got is, I can't wait to get hold of that guy to kill him. After three years of drought, um, Ahab hasn't been softened in the slightest. I draw your attention to that, guys, because there is a doctrine out there that some of you have heard about. It's called purgatory. And those who propose purgatory will tell you that one of the purposes of purgatory is to Oh, it's to, uh, it's to produce a sorrow for sin. I, I, I'm telling you it won't work. Um, I, I guess I should also tell you that I don't believe in a purgatory. But ladies and gentlemen, there, there's, a, there's a scene in Revelation chapter 16 where God is pouring out the bowls of his wrath and, and uh, the people gnaw their tongues and curse the God of heaven for their pain and sores and they did not repent of their deeds. Guys, just because you've experienced a, a bad time doesn't necessarily, it's not necessarily going to produce softness towards God. The only thing that will produce, that will soften the human heart is God himself. What I want you to, re, what I want you to recognize is this, guys. Are, are you in a particularly bad time now, a drought, you would call it? Well, don't blame Elijah. Don't blame those who want to bring the truth to you. In in that sense, the drought may be a friend of yours. The drought may be the thing that God is going to use to soften you. It may be the thing that's going to give you an opportunity to return to God. Maybe. What you're in is either going to make you better or it's going to make you bitter. The difference is going to be is what God is up to and how you respond to that. Guys... Only God will soften this hard old heart of mine, um, not purgatory. Now, having 
said those two things. Let's, let's take a look at the story itself. It's really quite a doozy. I mean, it's a dramatic scene. Uh, one man up against 450 prophets of Baal. You know, we have seen dramatic scenes like this before in the history of the church. I think the most familiar one is, I think most of you know, is the one about Luther, Martin Luther, when he launched the Protestant Reformation, when he stood before the whole Holy Roman Empire, and he said, here I stand, I can do no other God, help me. There's another one that you may not know about that occurred in the 4th century with a guy by the name of Athanasius. Athanasius stood against the whole council of Nicaea over the doctrine of the deity of Christ. And and the event became known as Athanasius Contramundum. That's a little Latin phrase that means Athanasius against the world. Well, that's what you have here, folks. One man pitted against 450 prophets of Baal. And you notice in the story that once the story opens, or once the two of them meet up, who takes charge? It's not the king. It's Elijah. In fact, from this point forward, Elijah is the one telling everybody what to do. It's almost comical what goes on from here on. In fact, from verse 17 until verse 41, you never hear a word from Ahab again. He simply is doing everything that Elijah tells him to do. Not only does the Ahab, the king, do that, but so do the prophets of Baal. They're, they, Even when he's mocking them, they're all doing exactly what uh, Ahab tells them to do. Like their God at Baal, they've all grown silent for some reason. And we come to verse uh, 26 or so, and we're told that at the, at the, in the middle of the day, they've exhausted all of their efforts, and now the their efforts have come to come to naught. Look, look, look at verse um, 29. No one answered. No one paid attention. All of the devotion that these people have given to Baal have come to naught. And then Elijah takes over. And he says, bring me 12 stones. First of all, he says, draw near. I want everyone to see what's going to take place. Guys, one of the the wonderful distinctions between truth and error is that truth always invites the light. Error hides from the light. But Elijah says, come near. Now, guys, you've got to see this. This is important in the story. Verse 31. He took 12 stones according to the number of the tribes of the sons of Jacob. So he builds an altar of 12 stones. Those 12 stones are to represent Israel. Now notice that when the fire falls, it doesn't fall on the people. It falls on the altar. It falls on the stones. Judgment, in essence, falls on a substitute Israel. It doesn't fall on the people. And then the enemies of God are slain and, and the brook Kishon becomes the place where the blood of 450 prophets are spilled. For the moment, it seems like Yahweh has won, but the victory is short-lived. And in the end, this, um, this opportunity for covenant renewal is, is stillborn and um, Ahab returns to his previous ways. Now that's the story, guys. So what I want to do as we close 
is that I want to try and extract some lessons from all that that hopefully will be helpful for us. Here's lesson number one. I want you to notice, guys, in this story that Elijah comes to the people. He never speaks one single word to the prophets of Baal. He never tries to convert the the, the prophets of Baal, although he does try to convert the people who are uh, watching this whole event. Guys, um, here's, here's my point. There is a distinction that is made in the scriptures between the hostage and the enemy. That is a distinction that you find throughout the Old and the New Testament. Jesus does the same thing. Jesus is always displaying compassion on the crowd. But when he gets ready to speak to the scribes and the Pharisees, he uses language that is blood-curdling. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees. Because the Bible makes a distinction between the hostage and the enemy. Let me give you a... Um, and a, a contemporary example, I hope. Have you ever heard of the Jesus Seminar, ladies and gentlemen? You ever heard of that? It's a, it's a seminar that I think it occurs twice a year in various cities around the country. It was brought into being several years ago by two people. Uh, one guy by the name of Funk, his last name was Funk. The other guy is a guy, a guy by the name of John Dominic Crossan. He was in Memphis within 12 years, 12 months, I mean, within the year. He was here in Memphis speaking at a church in Memphis. One of the authors of the Jesus Seminar. You know what the Jesus Seminar is? It is a panel of supposed New Testament scholars that are voting on the historicity of Jesus' life and times. And they vote on it by throwing various colored beads into a basket. Now, here's my point. Guys, it's one thing to attend a Jesus seminar. It's altogether different to lead the Jesus seminar. Because the Bible makes a distinction between the hostage and the enemy. Elijah goes after the hostages. But he never says a single word about the enemies, ladies and gentlemen. There is a, there is a very scary thing not to be confused but to try and promote confusion among the people of God those who promote it are never sought out like those who are confused and you see that in this in this event Here's the second lesson, guys, because it, it gives me a chance to say, I mean, this is one of the reasons that I'm so drawn to this text, this, this next lesson. It gives me a chance to say something about the law of contradiction. <laughs> guys, over here, um, um, it's in verse 21. If the Lord is God, follow him. But if Baal... Then follow him. Ladies and gentlemen, you cannot imagine how important that little statement right there is. Have you ever heard of the law of contradiction or the law of non-contradiction? Have you ever heard of that? Some people attribute it to Plato, others uh, Socrates, still others. Um, Aristotle 
I want to suggest to you that it's an Aristotelian law of logic. Guys, logic, someone has said, is a policeman that God has put in the brain. When you and I are carrying on a conversation, if there is ever going to be any meaningful dialogue between me and you, you and I have to agree to certain things. First of all, we have to agree to the meaning of words. For instance, if I say that a circle is round, and you say that a circle is square, there's not going to be any conversation, any meaningful dialogue, until we agree, at least in the main, over the meaning of words. There's something else that we've got to agree upon. It's called the law of contradiction. Here's what the law of contradiction says. It says X cannot be X and non-X at the same time in the same relationship. Did you get that? Let me see if I can put it like this. Jesus cannot be Christ and Antichrist at the same time in the same relationship. Ladies and gentlemen, where you see the violation in spades of the law of contradiction is in the position known as pluralism. You know what pluralism says? Pluralism says that all religions are equally true and equally valid. Ladies and gentlemen, that is a slip into the irrational. It's, it's to make yourself insane. R.C. Sproul said that the 21st century, in, in the 21st century, we see what he calls the triumph of irrationality. L- let me illustrate. Guys, in Christianity, we say that there are three essentials. Three essentials. The Trinity. Christology, that is, Jesus is God and man. And salvation by grace through faith alone. Those are the the three essentials. We're not talking about baptism here, folks. We're talking about essentials. Trinity, Christology, and salvation by grace through faith alone. Judaism denies all three of those. And we go and say all religions are equally true and equally valid. Ladies and gentlemen, I want to I say something to you. If Baal is God, for heaven's sake, serve him. But if Yahweh is God, then serve him. But none of this foolishness about all religions are equally valid. Islam denies the Trinity, denies the deity of Christ, and denies salvation by grace through faith alone. And then we say, they're both equally true and equally valid. Ladies and gentlemen, you've lost your mind. You've lost your mind. You have slipped into the irrational. Guys, if you want to... Mormonism denies the deity of Christ, denies the Trinity. And we say that it's equally valid and equally true. That is irrational. It is a leap into the absurd. Guys, I'm not trying to say that Islam is wrong, bad, Judaism. I'm not trying to say any of that. 
If you want to serve Baal, then for heaven's sake, serve Baal. If you want to serve Yahweh, then serve Yahweh. But none of this foolishness about both religions are equally true. That's, that's the, that's the border on the insane. It's to violate a law. Folks, in the midst of the dialogue between the religions, there has to be respectful dialogue. Yes. But we cannot adopt the irrational. And I wonder how many of you have been sucked into the triumph of irrationality by a culture who says that all religions are equally true and valid. Guys, Christianity may not be true. I think it is. But you may think otherwise. Okay. In the spirit of the prophet Elijah, I say to you, if Baal be God, then serve Baal. But if Yahweh be God, But don't you say to me, both of them are equally true and equally valid. No. Do you know the name Leo Tolstoy? Um, Tolstoy was a Russian novelist, uh, War and Peace, uh, Anna Karenia, um, Resurrection. There's several books that he wrote. But in Tolstoy's books, you'll you'll find Christian truth woven all through his books. Because Tolstoy was a Christian. But it was a very widely known fact that Tolstoy was very... Um, he was very, he, he didn't practice what he preached. He was a, he was a bad husband. He was a bad father. He was considered by some just a jerk. So one of his critics wrote him one time and said, Christianity couldn't possibly be true because you're a Christian. And this is how Tolstoy replied. This is, I'm, I'm quoting. He said, um, attack me. Rather than the path I follow. If I know the way home and am walking down it drunkenly, is it any less the right way because I am staggering from side to side? If it's not the right way, show me another way. And then I add this. But for God's sake... Don't tell me that both the ways are right. Because that, ladies and gentlemen, is the theater of the absurd. Here's the third lesson. It's in verse 21. The, the, uh, where it says he spoke to the people and the people did not answer him a word. you got to know this, guys, that, the, uh, that no answer is the same thing as the wrong answer. Do, do you know the game show on television, uh, Jeopardy? I mean, that thing's been on for years. I wonder how long that thing's been running, but it's been running for years. And uh, you know how the game show Jeopardy works. You know, you get the three contestants and you choose from a category and, and you say history for 400. And then the, then the question pops up and, and on occasion it pops up the daily double. And so that means the other two contestants are out and it's just you. And uh, so you get to wager as much as you want to wager. And if you win, you get to double your money and all that, what you wager and all that business. But then the question comes up, and at the point of the question, you've got one of three options. You can answer the question correctly and win the money. 
you can answer the question incorrectly and lose the money. But if you have no answer, the result is the same as having the wrong answer. My friends, um, you, you haven't yet come to a conclusion about what you think about Jesus Christ. I, I understand. We will turn ourselves inside out for you to try and help you sort some of that out. But you've got to know this. No answer is as bad as a wrong answer. If I can put it in theological terms, agnosticism is just a subset of atheism. Third lesson. I want you to see, guys, in this story, the consummate madness of serving false gods. It's in verses 26 through 29. Guys, can I, can I just explain it to you? It's in verses 26 through 29. The contest is this. Whatever God answers by fire, he's the real God. And so the, the prophets of Baal start out, we're, we're told they start out in, in the morning and they start saying, Oh, Baal, answer us. And then, then um, after they've done that for a while, um, Elijah mocks them. Hey, he must be on a vacation. Maybe he's asleep. Why don't y'all call louder? So that's what they do. They call louder. Then they start dancing. Then they ultimately begin to slice themselves and blood begins to flow. And then in verse 29, it says, they raved on until the time of the ablation. You see what happens? It starts with calling out. It gets louder. Then it goes to dancing. Then it goes to letting blood. And then it goes to raving. Guys, if you are serving any other God than the true God... He's going to treat you just like that. If career is your God, the demands are going to start out down here. And then they're going to go here. And then here and here and here until you're, you're spent. You'll start out working hard and then you'll, then you'll, then you'll neglect your family and then, then you'll become a workaholic and then you'll begin to drink too much and then you're, you've lost everything. It's a consummate madness of following and serving false gods. Any other God besides the true one is going to leave you just like Baal left them. There was no voice. No one answered. No one paid attention. I'm going to leave you empty. There's a madness, ladies and gentlemen. There's a madness associated with serving the wrong and the false God. Here's my final lesson. It has to do with the surprising... Oh, I guess it's operate The surprising nature of, the surprising operation of grace. Here's what I mean. Did you notice that the fire came down? It didn't go up? Folks, fire coming down is contrary to the nature of fire. And when the nature, when the, when the fire finally falls, it consumes only the stones. It, it doesn't consume the people. It consumes the stones. It doesn't consume the people of Israel. It consumes the representative of Israel. 
Guys, this, this mountain, Mount Carmel, it's a mountain that foreshadows an, 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 another mountain, a, a, a mountain that's outside of Jerusalem, where the fire of God's judgment falls and fell on the substitute Israel. His name is Jesus Christ. Grace operates contrary to how we think it should operate. The wrath of God falls not on the people. It falls on the representative of the people. It falls on the substitute of the people. It doesn't fall on those who deserved it. It falls on the one who didn't deserve it. But took it as a my substitute, as my representative in my place. You know, guys, I don't know whether you've kept up with um, the uh, the tragedy in the state of California, all the fires that they have out there consuming all those areas. Well, you, you know, one of the strategies in fighting fires, I'm not a fireman, but they even said this on the news. One of the strategies of fighting fires is what they call backfires. They like backfires. And what, what a backfire is, is this. They... They, they, the line of fire is here, and so they go in front of the, the, the line of fire, and they burn this big area of things uh, so that when the fire finally arrives at this, this place, it's already burned out. And so the idea is that the fire is going to go out because there's nothing left to burn. There's no more fuel in the area that's already been burned. My friend... Everlasting, eternal safety is only found in the place where the wrath of God has already burned, where the fire of God's wrath has already fallen, where the fire of God's wrath has already consumed. It's it's spent, it's been spent on the person and work of Jesus Christ. The only safety for me and you is to step inside that place that has already been burned. Because there's nothing, there's nothing else to burn there. There's no more fuel. Jesus Christ has become the, the object of the wrath of God so that it won't fall on me. I invite you, my friend, to step inside the place that's already been burned. It's only there where we'll be safe. Let's pray. Our Father, I do pray that you'll use your word to remind us of what's true and what's false in a world that is that is slipped into the irrational. Sooner or later, we've got to sort some things out. And I pray that, that your word will help us. This story will help us do just a portion of that. Lord, would you also... Show people the great beauty of grace that you have seen fit to to pour out your wrath on a substitute instead of us. And so we come to the place that's already been consumed. And there is where we hide. In the finished work of Jesus Christ. Lord, if you brought people here this morning who have not yet done that, would they, would you... 
Would you allow them? Would you enable them to do it now? Do it, Lord. Do that, would you please? We ask it in Jesus' name.